let's take our Bibles together and turn to the book of Acts, chapter 8. So we begin a new segment, kind of sandwiched in the life of Saul slash Paul. This will be an introduction to the person that we know as Saul, later to become the Apostle Paul in Scripture. So Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And once again, I want to say Happy Father's Day to all of our fathers here today and those who have, uh, those who have passed on and gone on to be with the Lord as my own father is in the presence of the Lord Jesus. And so I am grateful for the upbringing, the centrality of Christ. Not always perfect, but Christ was certainly center in our home. Historically, Father's Day seems to have set up an unintentional parallel between Mother's Day and Father's Day. And here's what I mean. On, Father, on Mother's Day, we, we honor our mothers and we, we describe our mothers as the picture of the virtuous woman. In Proverbs 31, we might even dip into the book of Ruth and describe Ruth as a virtuous woman and we depict our mothers in honor of their dedication and we praise them for their hard work as we ought to honor our mothers in their hard work. We ought to honor them in their uh, being virtuous in their homes. Father's Day comes along and the topic turns to what failures we are for not standing up and steering our families in the admonition of the Lord. We point out how fathers have this inescapable role as spiritual leaders in their home. Why? Because they do. We point out the failures instead of their strengths. I saw this Thursday, a quote from Billy Graham, and it seemed like I saw it like two or three times circulating this week over social media. And so I thought I would share this. I saw this quote issued by Billy Graham, and I thought it was very helpful. Billy Graham once said, a good father is one of the most unsung, unpraised, unnoticed, and yet one of the most valuable assets in our society today. If you were to scan any prison system, if you were to scan and survey any, uh, any related crime statistics in the world, you will find one of the most top determining factors for crime in a young man's life is the absence of a father. As a father, I want to be challenged when I am failing. I want to be challenged when I have put things in my own life in front of Christ. But I also want to be encouraged when I follow things in accordance to the Word of God. I think, fathers, you want to be encouraged as well as admonished. These two things go hand in hand. So, fathers, we have a huge responsibility to lead our families well. We have the responsibility to point our children and say, look at Jesus. Point them at Christ and say, look and then to point at ourselves and say, look, this is how you follow Jesus. And in reality, every one of us in here, our responsibilities as followers of Jesus is also 
to be ambassadors and representatives of Christ. Every person in here who names the name of Jesus are to be an ambassador and a representative of Jesus in the world today. We must say, look, here is how you follow Jesus. You saw the verse earlier from 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1 that said, the Apostle Paul said this, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ, which is really the core and crux of being a disciple maker. Making disciples. Imitate me as I imitate Jesus and so forth and so on. So today I want to talk to you about a topic that is embedded in almost every Christ-centered sermon that you will ever hear. Again, emphasis on Christ-centered sermon. When you take the Word of God, you break up in the Word of God, and you see Jesus in every word, in every sentence, in every paragraph, in every book, you see Jesus. Every Christ-centered sermon, there is this topic that is embedded in every Christ-centered sermon that you will hear. The topic is that of idolatry. The topic of idolatry is the undercurrent of every sermon you will ever hear that lifts up Jesus. Why? Because anything or things in your life and in my life, and there are many, that pulls us away from placing Jesus at the center of worship and adoration is idolatry. And my friends, we battle with idolatry every day of our lives. In fact, John Calvary used to talk of the mind as being a factory of idols. That we produce them quite, quite frequently. And sometimes we take good things, things that are good, and we make them into idols. The sermon today is taken from Acts chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, and is entitled, Making a Good Thing into a God thing, making a good thing and turning it into a God thing. Many good things exist in this world. They're comforting and helpful for people. And it is when the things of our lives and activities of our lives take center stage in our world that we turn them into idols. And so... Today I want to talk to you about making a good thing a God thing. In today's verses we are introduced to Saul. We saw him last time that we were in the book of Acts as he held the garments. The garments fell at the feet of Saul as they were beginning to stone Stephen, casting him out of the, of the city gates. We saw him last time we were there in Acts. But I want to set up Saul for what is to come later in a subsequent sermon series on the saga of Saul or Paul. I want to set us up for that. So our reading today will be in these first three verses, chapter 8, as entitled, Making a Good Thing into a God Thing. I want us to stand for the reading of the Word as we read these three verses together, and then we'll pray for the Lord's guidance. Acts chapter 1, verse... Acts chapter 8, verse 1 says, And Saul approved of his, that is Stephen's, execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. 
Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Father, we pray for the reading of the word. These three verses today teach us something about our life hid in Christ. Teach us, Lord, to take inventory. Those things in our life that are good things. Things that we have turned into idols. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now you might be asking, well, how has... Saul turned a good thing into a God thing, and we'll get there momentarily. But last time that we were in the book of Acts, we saw the stoning of Stephen. And these were the Hellenistic Jews, as they are called at the beginning of chapter 7. These were men who were called freed men. These are Jewish Hellenistic Jews from the north who had come to Jerusalem to worship. And in this crowd of Hellenistic Jews, there was a Sanhedrin and the crowd that surrounded Stephen that were also condemning Stephen to death by stoning. Stephen had given an extensive sermon all the way from chapter 1 all the way down to verse 53 of chapter 7, an extensive speech on the history of his fellow brethren how they had a history of always being in disbelief, how they had a history of always killing the prophet of God and had a history of, of persecuting the men and prophets of God and culminated in killing the anointed one, Jesus. They cast Stephen out of the city as they were angry and gnashed their teeth. And they were angry at Stephen and they began to stone him. And it is at this point Stephen has this vision of Jesus standing ready to receive the first martyr for the name of Jesus to ever be capsulated in the canon of Scripture. Ready to receive him. And the death of Stephen leads into the second stage of the Great Commission as mentioned in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. That is the mission of taking the gospel to Samaria and to Judea. Because of this pressing, because of this persecution, the church began to scatter. In chapter 8, we see the name Saul mentioned again, the second time that we see this name Saul. And for students of the Bible, you know this to be the Apostle Paul. We know that the Apostle Paul was converted, was saved, was sent on the road to Damascus in the next chapter over. We know that this is the Apostle Paul. But I want to challenge you this morning, for the sake of our content of these three verses, I'll ask you if as best we can take that presupposition about the Apostle Paul and let's put it to the side just for a moment. I want to talk to you about Saul the man that we see in Acts chapter 1. And I know that's very hard because we know that Saul later becomes Paul. We know his story as prescribed in the book of Acts and it's difficult for us sometimes. But I want to talk about Saul, the religious man. I want to talk about Saul, the prideful Saul. I want to talk about Saul, the Hebrew of the Hebrews, the one who charged against the early church. Saul teaches us something about idolatry and teaches us something about our own religiosity, that we are full of religion sometimes. We're full of tradition. Sometimes we want, to, we want the church to be back how it was in the glory days or the golden days. And we thrive and we look for those days. But God has not called us to look back to the glory days of the church. He has just told us to look to the church and to march on for Christ. 
in fact, remains. I don't want, I don't want to... I don't want the church to go the way it was in, in the past because, listen, there are as many trials and tribulations. I want to march forward with what the Lord has for his church, not go back. And so Saul was capsulated in his tradition, his idolatry, his religiosity, and toxic tradition that blinded him to the truth of who Jesus was. So I want to begin in verse 1, chapter 8. I talk to you about the seed of the church. What is the seed of the church prescribed in Acts chapter 1? Really, through the book of Acts itself, the seed of the church. The Bible tells us that Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And from that point, there arose a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. You can find remnants of this at the beginning of James. When James writes to the dispersed church, the scattered church, there is a word, the diaspora, the the scattered church. This great persecution arose, the Bible tells us, against the church in Jerusalem. And a product of this persecution tells us that they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. Now that last phrase tells us that these were Hellenistic Jews who came against the Greek-speaking Jews and the apostles were excluded from this, this leg of Persecution. Now I want you to get this image in your mind before we get to the actual wording of scattering. Get your image in your mind of somebody going out with seeds in their hand and scattering these seeds. Got the image? Okay, there's the image. There is no evidence that Paul ever reached down to pick up a stone to throw at Stephen. And the ironic element in all of this in Stephen's case, his stoning, his brutal killing, his brutal stoning, is there is not even enough evidence, an amount of evidence in Hebrew history, in Jewish history, to show that this was a regular practice amongst the Hebrew people. Is it in the law? Yes. You'll be stoned for this, break this law, you'll be stoned. Yes, but it is not a commonly practiced endeavor in the lives of the Jewish people. But the law was in place. Saul approved of the stoning of Stephen. And in Saul's own words, listen, later, in the words of the Apostle Paul, okay? So I told you to drop your presuppositions, but this helps us get a position of the man Saul in Acts chapter 1 and verse 3. This is what he said of himself in retrospect. Philippians 3 verse 5, this is, this is his tradition. This is how Saul held his head high with his pride, his tradition, his religiosity. Here's how he had his, his head high. That he was circumcised on the eighth day, as prescribed in the law, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of, Ju of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, he was a Pharisee. Verse 6, as to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, he was blameless. And all of that, the Apostle Paul, and all of that... He counted it all as loss for the sake of Jesus. So now Paul, as Saul, thought that he was in the will of God. Saul thought he was in the will of God, though he uh, thought he was on the side of the Lord, but was yet on the side of his religiosity, his heritage, his pride, and all those things that he held. He held his identity in these things and not in Yahweh. And not in God. Saul was leading the charge. 
There arose a great persecution amongst the church. The stoning of Stephen set forth this precedence that all those who follow Jesus of Nazareth must give an answer or face the consequences. Either relent or you will indeed face the same persecution as your brother Stephen did, the stones of sinful man. And Saul was this grand inquisitor who went out, who, who led the charge against the early church. I want you to notice with me there is a word, this image that I ask you to think about, this word scattered. Remember the seeds being scattered? Now, for this word scattered, for the uh, persecuted church dispersed, thrown, thrown abroad, first, the word scattered is used to describe something as being distributed, like grain. In fact, the word is often used with somebody casting seed, scattering seed. Now, you got the image in your mind. It is distributing grain, more specific seed. So when the early church father, the second century early church father by the name of Tertullian said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, this is what he had in mind. Persecution pressed the church and the church was forced to spread like scattered grain or seed. They scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria the last phase is a phase that we are in, if you will, the uttermost parts of the world. This is the second movement of the Acts 1-8 paradigm to Judea and Samaria. And all of this is in accordance with the sovereign will of our Lord. The introduction to Saul and for, and for the matters that have occurred thus far, it gives us a moment to pause and to reflect. Now what do we pause and what do we reflect upon in, these, in this first reading of this word. All these events have been preordained by the Lord Jesus. In fact, the Lord Jesus said that persecution would come. In fact, he didn't say if persecution will come, it is when persecution comes. And he gave some orders for the early church, for his apostles, to think not what you'll say when you'll, you're in persecution, for I will give you the words to say. Think not what to say when you are persecuted. And so it is sanctioned by the Lord. who He ordained the gospel distribution through the early church's persecution. He forecasted the level of persecution to come. And yet the church is also promised to thrive. Promised to thrive. And we think about our suffering today that we endure and the little things that go on in our life and we think that we are being persecuted persecuted or pressed on all sides and we really have no reference point we really have no idea of this level of persecution that forces the church out of its walls and into the highways and byways and through it all the Lord is shielding his church he is building up his church and we know now that later the story of, of Saul we know how the Lord will call Saul on the road to Damascus but not without going through the the the, the trial by fire himself. But I want you to think, as we infer in these texts together, I want you to think of what really holds this all together. The glue that holds these lives together, the glue that holds the early church together, the glue that holds a church going even as they are pressed and persecuted, 
is the resurrection of our Lord Jesus himself. If Jesus had not risen from the dead, let the blasphemers be judged. If Christ be not risen from the dead, stone away. If Christ be not alive, then let the religious zealots be stoned. If Christ be not alive, let them be judged. Let them suffer their consequences. But that is not the case at all. He is alive and He has changed their lives. He has changed their life so much that he, they are willing to die. They are willing to be pressed. They are willing to go. And He is alive and they are willing to suffer for His name's sake. Stephen was willing to be pressed under the deadly blows of the stones for Jesus. Listen, I, I can go on and on about how the modern church has turned cold and complacent when it comes to the gospel and making disciples. I can go on and on. We have gotten so comfortable in our little world and in our bubble that if we were persecuted or pressed for the gospel, I, I am fearful of our responses. I am fearful of what we would do. Would we have enough people that is resolute in their faith? Would we have enough people that are resolute in the gospel to even be counted as scattered? Do we have enough to be counted as the scattered or the seedling? Would Tertullian and others be able to look back and say, well, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church? We are so busy in our own little world that we have forgotten the business of the Lord. Now, as I mentioned earlier in the sermon about idolatry, there are things in our lives and, that have tried to take the rightful place of worship. And these are idols. And if you make an inventory of your life of the idols or potential idols, I would imagine that you would find quite a few potential idols at the threshold of sin. These are good things, by the way, that we have turned into idols. I would say to you, it is time to... Put Christ back at the center of all that we do. And that's easier for me to say that this morning than for us to do it. Sometimes it's, it's, it's just as easy as me saying it. Putting Christ back at the center. To have men and women who are willing to stick their necks out for the sake of the gospel. To be able to teach and to reach and to share and to serve and to go on mission and to serve the Lord Jesus. Be willing to stick our necks out for our, for our church family, our families, for the lost, for the undone. Notice with me verse 2. Talk about sticking our necks out for people. Verse 2. Devout men then buried Stephen and made a great lamentation over him. They had their own little funeral service here. These are godly men who are followers of Jesus who were not ran off by the threat of, of persecution. And in some way they risked, they risked securing the body of Stephen to give him a, a proper burial and a funeral service and lament over his death. Even for these devout men, there, there stood the threat that they could be found guilty like their brother Stephen and stoned themselves. But I want you to notice this. It is unlawful for the Jews to observe a funeral for a criminal. So for them to bury Stephen and have a funeral and lament over him spoke much to their character as devout followers of Jesus. They were willing to risk something that the Jews saw as unlawful to bury their friend 
and co-heir in Christ. Much can even be said about this, these men as point of application, and maybe one point of application, that we need some devout people who are willing to stick out their necks for their brothers and sisters in Christ, to stick out their necks for what we know as truth, for what we know is right, and what we know the Bible prescribes, and let the chips fall where they may. Stick our necks out and pursue the wayward, the lost, to have a burden for the lost, to, have, to pursue uh, w- rightful worship and joyful worship. Listen, we, could, we should have came in this church this morning excited to be able to worship King Jesus with our brothers and sisters. We should have been so full of joy that last night we couldn't hardly wait to get here. So men and women who will stick out their necks and pursue the wayward, who will stick out their necks and serve their families in a Christ-honoring way, no matter what culture tries to dictate, no matter what culture tries to force into our family dynamic, we're going to stand on the Word of God. In other words, we need a few good men, a few good people, a few good fathers to lead well. Listen, I have been into some homes and have counseled with the families where the men and the fathers sit right there like a, well, like a knot on a log and didn't input one spiritual aspect and the wives or mothers did all the talking. Now listen, I am grateful for the women taking the lead. I am grateful for the women leading in that way. I am grateful for women and mothers and and wives who will take the lead, who are praying. we got some praying women in this church, and I'm grateful for them. But what are we doing, men? We might be even guilty of idolatry ourselves. Taking something that is good and making it into something that is an idol. I want you to look at Paul in, uh, Saul in closing in verse 3. This is where the foolishness of misplaced zealousness becomes front and center. This is the foolishness of a misplaced zealousy for something that could be good but used in the wrong way. Verse 3, Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. How foolish it is to place all of your convictions into something that will come to be found wanting or anti-gospel. In this moment in Saul's life, he was anti-Christ. And by the way, the state of the church today is full of people who that they are, think they are marching on in the name of the Lord. They have picked up a cause within their local church and And they're traveling up a hill that they're willing to die on. Full of people who think that they are marching for the Lord. And in some cases they are so distant from the gospel that they have the scent of Satan all over them. People who claim to be followers of Jesus running out members of the church, running out their pastors, running out their deacons and people who come to worship, running them out for whatever reason. I can probably count, at least on two hands, 
the pastor friends that I know right now who have been run out because the church had an unbiblical uh, persona, an unbiblical idea of what a pastor should be. And they went about any type of rebuke in an ungodly, unbiblical way. And they think that they're marching on in the name of the Lord and are distant from anything remotely close to Scripture. See, Saul thought that he was doing the Lord's work. He was actually anti-Christ in his endeavors. And Lord, let not ever, never be laid at the charge of us. Should we have, do we have grievances? Sure. Do we have disagreement, disagreeances? Sure. Is there a right biblical way to handle those grievances? Yes. I don't want to ever be something laid at my feet that says, you handled that in an anti-Christ way. The Bible says that Saul was ravaging the church. The Greek word for ravaging is like a wild beast that is tearing their prey, tearing apart their prey. He thought that he was in the will of God, sending out this wave of persecution. They are blaspheming Yahweh. We must stop this. Later on, we'll know that the Lord calls Saul and actually uses his zeal against Jesus and turns it into zeal for Jesus. The idea was Saul was attempting to lay waste to these followers of Jesus like a wild beast, particularly a wild boar trampling the vineyard, all in the name of Yahweh. People follow suit today. Let me tell you this, one of the most dangerous people that you'll ever meet on earth is a religious zealot who thinks that they are in the will of God and that their mission is divorced from any truth of Scripture. This was pivotal in the history of the early church. And Saul was entering into the house, the Bible tells us, and dragging people and putting them in prison. And This is not Saul knocking on the door, can I come in and talk with you for a minute? This is not Saul coming in to reason. He was sanctioning people to go into those homes and bring them out. This is not an, an invitation to come in. This was a home, home invasions. Something that will mirror the early church and early church history through the great persecutions when Roman emperors would send out people and it would drag families out of their home and lie against them, take their land. Great persecutions. And all the while... Saul thought he was on the side of the Lord. In short, he had made a good thing into a God thing. And you might say, well, preacher, how is what Saul is doing a good thing? Let me explain. It is good for people to stand for truth. And I think we ought to stand for truth. When it is truth. When it is truth. It is good for us to stand for what is right, to stand upon the Word of God, to stand upon the written Word of God, to stand upon what God has said and prescribed. It is good to stand for what is truth. It is good to have pride 
in your heritage and in your history. It is a good thing to look back to where you've come from to see where God has brought you to. It's a good thing to know, hey, I am, I am proud that I grew up in the Stevens household. I am proud that I grew up in the family that I did, in the town that I did, and I'm living in the place that I'm living now. It is a good thing to think about those things. It is good to call out evils in the world. It is good to call out something that you think is wrong in the world, but to make it so central to your life that you are willing to kill and execute for it, you have made this your idol or your God. When you will lay it in front of Jesus and forget Jesus, you have made it an idol in your life. There's, there's moments in, in, in the history of the church when, when we have taken things that are good in the church and we have made them above Jesus. We have taken ministries and we have tried to supplant Jesus by just focusing on those ministries. Ministries can become an idol. Taking something that is good and nurturing and beneficial and making it into an idol in our lives. Saul's prestige, his heritage, and his tradition overshadowed the truth and heightened his sinfulness and blinded his eyes to the truth of Messiah. Look, historically the church have, has had problems, has had problems just focusing on the past. We have had, we have had problems of looking to the past and wanting to go, go back there to that time. Why not go further than 50 years ago, 60 years ago when there was men and women who, who were coming to the church and doing certain ministries? Why not go before that? Why not go to the persecuted church? If, if any time is the golden era of the church, it would be when the apostles were walking the earth. Why not go back there? Because I, I say that to say this. Even looking back to our past, it can become an idol to us because we long for the return of the good old days or the golden days of the church. And I'll say it again, as I said in the past, there is no golden age of the church. There is no good old days of the church. There is just... The church. And we can take that and we can make it an idol. So much so that we can be blinded of what the Lord is doing here and now. There are good things in our life that we have turned into idols. And for Saul, he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was a Pharisee. He was a champion of the law. He was antagonistic to the gospel. He led the charge, persecuted the church. He thought that he was on the side of God. He was guilty of this misplaced zealousy. Now praise the Lord that he'll call Saul and he'll use this zealousy. And, so, and, and Paul would be an author of two-thirds of the, of the New Testament. Would take the gospel to the Gentile, to Rome. But in this case, he thought that he was on the Lord's side. And our lives are full of potential idols. Again, this is a theme that you'll hear through any, almost any sermon will be the undercurrent. There are things that threaten rightful worship to King Jesus in our lives. Many things that we are involved in can be good things. But we have turned them into a God thing. I know people who claim to be followers of Jesus who will spend more money and resources getting their child to hit a baseball straight or to dribble a ball down the court 
they'll spend more money on that than they will investing in their child's spiritual vitality. We are more concerned with entertaining our children. We are more concerned about keeping our children busy and entertaining them. We're so more concerned about bidding, building a, Christ, uh, a child-centered home than we are a Christ-centered home. Listen, as a parent, it isn't my job. You as a parent, it isn't your job to make sure that your child is always happy. That is a futile task. Do I want my children happy? Yes. But listen, Jesus comes first. Jesus comes first. And by the way, this mentality has seeped into our churches. We have become more concerned with entertaining our kids with programs than we are with building truth. We are more concerned about what the church has for my kids than what I can offer to minister to the kids of the church. We think the church should be a catalog of events for our children instead of disciple-making tools. When this type of persecution comes, when the persecution that we have seen around the world like we see today, where families... Listen, there are places who would meet like this. If they were to meet like this, they would consider it a miracle from God. For the persecuted church to meet like we do and sing like we do, have a temperature in this sanctuary that's probably about, what, 73 degrees, 74, is a miracle. And persecution like that comes, bouncy houses, pizza parties, ice cream socials, and those things are not going to see you through persecution. Now, those are good things. I like a good piece of pizza. I like to have ice cream. I like to fellowship. I like to play bingo. I like to do those things that we do. Those are good things. But if we're not careful, we can turn them into a God thing. We could be so wrapped up in programs we could be so wrapped up in trying to allure families and children by the things, children by the things that we do, which in all reality, what should be the most alluring thing at all, if we have a catalog of anything, is the supremacy and beauty of Jesus. Again, these are good things. We have set them up to be idols. In conclusion. We see the seed of the church in chapter 1 became the means of the way that the Lord spread the gospel. And there were men and women who were willing to do what it took to spread the good news, were willing to stick their neck out, were willing to spread and scatter, were willing to stick around and clean up, if you will. The seed of the church became, the blood of the martyrs became the seed of the church. Secondly, there's a foolishness of misplaced zealousness where we can take good things and turn them into idols. And to this, I believe that we all, every one of us, from the pastor to the back, should take inventory. Let's pray together.